0: Bibles to 1 Samuel 18, and we're going to spend some time in 1 Samuel as we continue our 50 days of David, and uh, even though I will be out of town, you will have the week four material back there for you for the continuing week, we will not pause that, I want you to keep doing your uh, studies as you read through the life of David. There was a long running program uh, while I was uh, a little boy on ABC that played on the weekends, uh, typically on Saturdays and Sundays, you might have remembered watching it. Called Wide World of Sports. I, I always made sure to watch Wide World of Sports, and probably, the, really, the best part I liked was the the beginning opener because you you had these great athletes doing a variety of events, and you had this my favorite line, and you had the thrill of victory. I think there was a gymnast. I didn't care about that part. But I think there was some gymnast doing a perfect ten, but then I always looked forward to this part, as the music would then decline. And the agony of defeat, and there would be this ski jumper halfway down the hill, wiping out, head, skis everywhere, flying off the ski jump in the air, tumbling over, and I'd always watch him go, oh man, he's just wrecking everywhere. And the great voice, I believe it was Howard Cosell who had done that, that whole line there, and the agony of defeat, and man, watching this guy just crash and burn all the way down the hill. And that to me is the, the essence of, of what life is all about. Is You will be at one moment on the, the peak of life and you will have the thrill of victory and, and you will think everything is going so well. And then suddenly it may seem at a moment's notice the agony of defeat. As life then sends a curveball, and you go spiraling out of control and you don't know where you're going to end up. And that is certainly... A picture of David's life. If you remember last week, we are now with the thrill of victory. He has now defeated Goliath. Nobody was willing to take a stand against Goliath. Not even Saul... Not even David's older brothers who were uh, trained soldiers and warriors. Everybody stood in fear as Goliath stood for 40 days and 40 nights just making a mockery of Israel. And making a mockery of their God. And David is the one who has been willing to bring about the victory. And you can imagine how great that would have been. Not only that, remember David is the anointed king, that Saul, because of his sin, that his descendants are not going to be king. David is the one who's next in line. He is about to be king over Israel. And then we go a little bit further and we come into chapter 18 and notice what we're told about how successful David is. That David marched out with the army and was successful in everything that Saul sent him to do. Saul put him in command of the soldiers, which pleased all the people, and Saul's servants as well. David is so successful, God is with him, that it seems that anywhere that David goes into battle, that God is granting David victory. He is just this great military leader, it seems. And he says, wait a minute. And our shepherd boy, that old Jesse, was like, you mean that kid back there in the shed taking care of my sheep? Look at how great things are going in his life. He'd been overlooked by everybody, and now we have great victory conquering Goliath. He's marching out with armies now, leading them into battles. And the next verse is even better. We have the heroes welcome as they come home from battle. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine." The women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. You imagine as they all ride back into Jerusalem, the great cheers of the city. Because remember what was on the line in that battle? Whoever won that battle between David and Goliath was going to enslave the other. If Goliath had won that, Israel was done. They were going to be taken into slavery into the Philistine hands. And this David has won the battle. And as they ride back in, you can visualize Saul as king over Israel. And here comes the soldiers. And here comes David. It's the ticker tape parade. It's the welcome home soldiers. And they're cheering. And you can just see the women playing the music and dancing. The whole city is just, just thrilled. And look at what they're even singing in verse 7. The women saying to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. They're, they're just heaping praises. Look at how Saul can wipe out the thousands and David wipes out the tens of thousands. And if we were just to put a pause right here in the story, I, I really think this would be the moment where we could pull out some of our commercials today and say, life doesn't get any better than this. I mean, you are at the top. David, it just doesn't get any better. You're, you're victorious. The, the people love you. They're singing your praises. You're the next king over Israel. You, you, you're you're going to have everything handed to you. And even better, at the beginning of chapter 18, you have Saul's son, Jonathan. Now, Jonathan would be next in line uh, after Saul dies to be king. And you read about Jonathan takes off his robe and puts it on David. And takes off his equipment and gives it to David. And you say, now why would you... That's symbolism. Jonathan is accepting and recognizing that David's the next king. Taking off the princely robe and saying, David, you're the next one. I know that's God's will. Jonathan is saying, I'm not going to fight you on this. We're not going to have a problem. And in fact, what does it tell us there chapter 18... They become best friends. They're knit together in the heart. Could it be any better? You're the next king. Your potential rival is your best friend. He yields to you and says, I know you're you're God's anointed, you're God's chosen. You've killed the Philistine. The people are singing your praises. It's a ticker tape parade all throughout Hebron and Shiloh and Jerusalem. I can imagine them just going all throughout the land of Canaan there as the people are cheering and joyful. Again, play the commercial. just doesn't get any better than this. This is, has to be the high point of David's life. And yet this is now going to be the turning point of David's life as he's now going to be plunged into one of the worst situations that he would ever experience. And who would ever believe that life could get so good and be so perfect it seems. And at this moment, everything now is going to unravel. Saul was furious and resented this song. They credited ten thousand, tens of thousands to David, but they only credited me with thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And So Saul watched David jealously from that day forward. Everything changed from that moment on. What seems like would now be easy street for David the rest of the way now turns out the success is going to bring about tremendous problems. And what we don't have time to read about, and hopefully you've done it in your studies uh, that I've given you in the fifty days with David, and if you haven't done that, read these next few chapters and notice. How many times now Saul tries to kill David? It's it's fascinating to me how often Saul is trying to get David killed. This first one just, just cracks me up. David is playing the harp as usual. Remember that we saw that earlier in our previous study that Saul is being tormented and David is playing the harp. He's still doing that even with all the victory that's been going on. Even though he's the next king of Israel, he's still playing the harp for David. But David was holding, excuse me, Saul was holding a spear. And he threw it thinking, I'll pin him to the wall. You imagine all David is playing there along trying to sue Saul and there's a spear right by your head. And what cracks me up is the next line is that Saul did it again. (laughs) He did it twice. And Saul David got away from him twice. He threw another one at him. Whoa, what are you doing, Saul? I'm trying to comfort you and play this art for you. And and here's Saul. All of a sudden, he just gets up the notion, I'm going to kill him right now. Grab a spear out from the side of his chair. Boom! Tries to nail David right to the wall. You read on in chapter 18, it turns out Saul comes up with a brilliant plan, he thinks. He's going to give David one of his daughters to be his wife. He'd say, what a great gesture of King Saul. I will give David one of my daughters and that will... Well, show my concern and my love for him. But actually, Saul intended this to cause David's death at the hands of the Philistines. Because what Saul says is, I want to give you one of my daughters in the hand of marriage. Now, here's the betrothal price. I want the foreskins of 100 Philistines. He says, David, go kill 100 Philistines and bring back their foreskins so I can know that they're dead. And David goes and kills 200 Saul did that thinking he'd get killed going into battle by himself like that to go kill all these Philistines. Saul again thinking of ways that he can get rid of this rival. Saul realized, verse 28, that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved him. And he became even more afraid of David and as a result Saul was David's enemy from then on. You come into chapter 19. And Jonathan brings a message to David. Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. What you read about in chapter 19 is victorious David, the anointed David, the champion of Israel who's conquered the Philistine, the one who had been given the ticker tape parade, and they were louding his great praises and joys of what he'd been able to accomplish David is hiding out in the countryside, in the bushes and in the fields. He can't even be in the city because Saul's trying to kill him. And I read that, and I, just, I just scratch my head and go, this, it's unbelievable how precipitous the fall was. It just seems like everything was set to go. The world was on his shoulders. He had the, the, the tiger by the tail. He was good to go. And it all just came crashing down. Everything is falling apart. Saul is trying to kill him. And all that David has left is to run through the hills of the land of Israel trying to hide as Saul and his soldiers scour city by city trying to find where David is so they can kill him. A very tough time in David's life. And as I think about that story, I, I can't help but pose the question that that surely would have been in David's mind and it comes to our mind when you have the good times suddenly turn to the bad. Why? Why does this happen? How could this happen? David is doing everything that God wants him to do. It's not like David had been rebellious against God and so you could justify this and say, Well, you know, David's getting what he deserves. You know, David had been violating the law left and right and so it was time for Saul to go after. What had David done wrong? He's really almost been an innocent bystander. He's just taking care of sheep and he gets anointed by Samuel. He's taking food to his brothers in the middle of battle and says, am I going to go get this Goliath? Okay, if you're not, I will. Well, Well, we'll go do this. And because of that, he's now forced to live in the weeds. The next king of Israel. In fact, David presents this very problem to Jonathan. As Jonathan comes to him as he's out there in the bushes and he says to him, says to Jonathan, what have I done? What did I do wrong? How have I sinned against your father so that he wants to take my life? He can just see David to say to Jonathan, what is going on with your dad? He's just cuckoo. What have I done against him? I've been playing the harp. I haven't been taking the kingdom from him. What have I done against him? What sin have I committed? Show me my wrong that he's chasing me like this. What is happening? And that's what I think life is difficult. is when you're trying to do what's right and bad things happen. I think you and I can deal with the times when we do things that are wrong and bad things happen. I go, okay, I deserve that. You know, we kind of nod our head and take our lickings and go, yeah, you know, that that was a tough one. But I, I deserve that. I know I was doing wrong. But when we're doing what's right, when we're trying to serve God, when we're doing our very best and bad things happen, that's when we scratch our head and we go, you know, I don't understand. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes describes as the, the wise teacher there questions life under the sun and sees the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous. We see that in the book of Job. Uh, as Job considers himself as, as a case study. Here's a righteous and upright man who was losing everything in his life. Brother Pope talked about Psalm 73 as Asaph asked the very same question as his feet almost stumbled because the righteous suffered and the wicked prospered. The question that always comes to us over and over again, why does this happen? And I'd like to present to you just a couple of thoughts. And this isn't all inclusive. There's other reasons. But one of the things that we see going on in David's life, and it's certainly one of the things that we see in the book of Ecclesiastes and a number of other passages, is that sometimes bad things happen because we're doing good. And then what? Uh, sometimes bad things happen because we are doing good. And, and here's the reason why, a couple of reasons I think this is this is the case. First of all, There is no doubt. The scriptures repeatedly tell us that Satan is fighting against us. Satan is working hard against us. And I have seen countless, countless times when somebody begins to try to get their life right with God. They try to straighten things up. Their life is a disaster and a mess They're living selfishly, plunged into sin. They finally open their eyes as they're in the pit of sin and decide, you know, I'm going to start trying to do what's right. I'm going to do better. It seems almost every time some major tragedy happens. Why? Do you think Satan wants to give you back that easy? And I've seen so many people see that suffering and go, now, things were okay when I was doing bad. And now bad things happen while I was doing good. So what's the point in serving God? I'll go back to the bad. I've seen that logic happen. Is that not what Satan wants us to do? Is that not the efforts of Satan? What better thing could Satan do to cause that kind of confusion in our lives? They'll look at us and go, throw some bad things in there so they won't understand. Is that not what happened with Job? That was the very statement that Satan made to God. He's only serving you because you keep good things happening to him. Throw him some bad, it will give him some confusion. He won't know what to do. He'll completely turn away from you. And in fact, is that not the rationale of Job's wife? If this is the way things are going to be, Job, you ought to just curse God and die. That's what Satan wants us to do. That's exactly the way he wants us to perceive life. Is look at it and go, if righteousness gets me to here, then why bother? And we sometimes forget that Satan is involved in the battle. And so often we take suffering and we think, well, why did God do this? And forget to ask the question or think about the possibility that Satan is fighting against us. Does not Satan want our souls does he not want to strip every person away from God? When we decide to do what's right, God—excuse me Satan's not going to make it easy for us to return to God. Satan's going to fight back. I've seen that with almost nearly every new Christian. They begin to make a decision to follow God and what happens? Something difficult comes along to try to turn them away from God. I thought... Brother Mike did such a good job in his series in talking about per- per- perfect in and trials. And he talked about the coin, how it's the same coin, but on one side it's a temptation to turn away from God and on the other side it's a trial. And it's the same event. And yet it's Satan's attempt to take us away from God. It's God's attempt to strengthen us and strengthen our faith. Which will it be? And I thought that illustration was exactly right of what James 1 is talking about. Satan is tempting us to turn away from God, to take that difficulty and say, where's God? I'm going to quit. And God takes the trial and hopes that we will strengthen us to follow after him. And so I think it's important to consider that bad things will happen because we're trying to do what's right. And there's no clause in the scriptures that tell us do good and everything will always turn out roses. Sometimes when we're trying to do what's right, Satan is going to try to rip us apart for trying to do that. The second reason that the righteous suffer as well is because darkness isn't going to fellowship with light. You know, when you're trying to do what's right, you're trying to be the example, you're trying to say and do the right things, and you're around your peers. They don't just sit back idly and go... Yeah, I've got a guilty conscience about that. You know, I see you trying to do what's right and that really pricks my heart and that causes me to think about my life and I need to change. What does darkness do? They ridicule and scorn you and say you're crazy. You're nuts for living that way. They persecute you. They abuse you. That's how darkness responds to light. They don't get pricked in their own heart. They don't want to be responsible and say, yeah, I see you living that way. Boy, I ought to live my life better, too. I ought to seek after God. No, what do they do? They heap problems upon you. They cast evil and abuse upon you. And I think we need to see that. That's that's what what happens with Saul here with, with David. Rather than Saul stepping back and saying, boy, I am sure glad that David stepped up to the challenge. I am sure glad that the people recognize the great faith that David had to go into battle all by himself with five stones against that Goliath and to take him on. Now, what does Saul do? I'm going to get rid of my problem. I'm going to kill David. He doesn't sit back and look at himself and go, boy, he's somebody I've got to be like. i had to have that courage like David had. I need to have that faith like David. No, he doesn't look at himself. He tries to eliminate the problem. I'm going to take, it, take David out. That's what evil does to the righteous. The evil ones are going to look at the righteous and go, I don't like you. I'm going to cause you problems. And we have to understand that that's the Scriptures even talk about that. Peter said that. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. And they heap abuse on you. That's their response. They're going to look at you and think you're crazy. They're going to look at you and think you're nuts. How can you be righteous in this world? And what, how are they going to respond? Not with all. Oh. That's very thought provoking. Maybe I ought to live my life right. They won't respond that way. Peter says they will heap abuse upon you. 2,000 years ago Peter said that's the way they'll respond. <coughs> Things have not changed. Satan is fighting against the righteous. And those who plunge themselves into darkness are fighting the righteous. And that's where David stands. And does not the life of Jesus completely exemplify that? Did He suffer for doing anything wrong? No, He suffered for being righteous. He suffered for doing good. He suffered for teaching others. And we have to recognize that's just what's going to happen as well, is that other people will treat us in the same fashion. So things are so bad. Things are so bad. Can you imagine this? Things are so bad for David. Do you know where David flees? He flees to the land of the Philistines. Now talk about walking into enemy territory. Easy for me to say. Talk about walking into enemy territory. You just killed their champion warrior. You have led the forces of Israel against the Philistines and driven them out of the land all the way back to their own land. And the only place that you can find comfort and refuge is to go into the very same place where your name has certainly been spread all throughout that land of that David who had killed the mighty Goliath. And he goes in there and he he hears that they know he's there. He changes his behavior, acts like a madman, starts letting drool run out of his mouth to think that he's gone mad and nuts. This is what our David has been relegated to. Hiding in enemy land. And even that's dangerous. And so David has to flee the land of the Philistines. And he plops down in a cave called Adullam, all by himself. And that's where our story gets us to in chapter 21 in chapter 22. In chapter 22, he escapes into a cave of Adullam. That's just an amazing thought. You've gone from the highs of life, what seemed to be so great, to sitting all by yourself in a cave in the middle of the land, hiding from King Saul, hiding from the Philistines. And it seems that you have nowhere to turn. I want to consider what are the things that we should do when this happens. What do you do? when your peaks turn into life's valleys. And we're going to look at what David does. The first thing we see David do is he entrusts his life to God. What else can you do? I mean, I hope when we get into those situations, we realize how badly we need God. We need to entrust our lives to God. And I love how verse 3 describes it. He's talking uh, to this one particular person here in verse 3 about what's going to happen next Uh, here is this king of Moab we don't know uh, his name and he's talking to them and he just says you know I'm trying to make these arrangements until I know what God will do for me David doesn't know what's going to happen next I've submitted to you many times I think that's one of the difficulties of life's trials is you don't know what the future holds you don't know how it's going to turn out and that's where David is right now as he's plopped into this cave and he's talking to this king of Moab and says I want you to take care of some things here uh... Because I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, Until God uh, sets forward what's going to happen to me next. Uh, I'm just going to be sitting here in this cave. He's trusting his life to God. Uh, I don't know what God's going to do for me now. There are a number of psalms that were written during this time. I want to take a few moments for you to listen to some of the things that David is able to say in the midst of these dire circumstances, from going from the great victories and joys of life to being on the run, in the cave, they're seeking out His life. Psalm 59, first verse, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. "'Deliver me from those who work evil "'and save me from bloodthirsty men. "'For behold, they lie in wait for my life. "'Pierce men stir up strife against me. "'For no transgression or sin of mine, O Lord. "'For no fault of mine they run and make ready. "'Awake and come meet me and see. "'You, Lord, God of hosts, are the God of Israel.'" Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Spare none of those who treacherously plot evil. He concludes this psalm. I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. O my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God of who shows me steadfast love. Great dependence upon God. Psalm 57. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for in You my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of Your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I will cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps, my soul was bowed down, they dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast, I will sing and make melody. Awake my glory, awake, O harp and lyre, I will awake in the dawn, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. In the midst of that suffering, in the midst of that despair, I give thanks to you. Your steadfast love, great to the heavens. Faithfulness to the clouds. Relying on God. Entrusting himself to God. He's praying to God and saying, You're going to take care of this. I have not given up on you. Psalm 142 With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord, I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of the prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Again, calling out to God, trusting himself to God. Finally, Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. Can you imagine saying that? I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look on him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all of his troubles. And notice how it ends. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. And while 1 Samuel 22 doesn't tell us that he's kneeled down in that cave and prayed, that he put his petition before God and said, I entrust you, the Psalms reflected that that's what David did. He took his cries before God. He went before him and said, I have to trust in you. I have nobody else. There's nobody beside me. I have no other comfort. There's no other refuge. You're the one. And I think that is our first response when we come into the valleys is to realize that we entrust ourselves to God. 1 Peter 4.19 tells us to do the exact same thing. Suffering in accordance with God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. That's a, a great difficulty but that's what we have been left with is okay God I have to rely upon you to get me through this danger. Tie that with what we did last week and talking about how David recalled how God had delivered him in the past. And put that with this entreaty that David makes now before God and say, God, you're going to deliver me again. You are my fortress. You are my refuge. I'm going to trust in you. You will get me through this. You will take care of these that cause my suffering. And you will deliver me through. The second thing that we should do in Life's Valley is not only trust God, but I think one thing that I really enjoy reading about in 1 Samuel 22 is all the people who came to his aid. It is just amazing to me. David is in the cave and, and he's by himself. And what we read about is first the family comes to him. In verse 1, David departed from there, speaking of the land of the Philistines, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it. They went down there to him. <laughs> you know, the family didn't just go, well, you know, all poor David, stinks for you. They all went to the cave too. Father and mother, as we read about in verse 3, they're all there. Brothers are there too. Can you imagine all the brothers? The brothers who said, what are you doing out here, coming out here? Where's the sheep? Remember how they, they kind of taunted him? Uh, what are you doing out here with this Philistine. All the brothers go to his aid. But verse 2 is is even more fascinating. Not only family. Look who else comes there. And everyone who was in distress. And everyone who was in debt. And everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. I love that. He got every single person who was an outcast to decide to come to where David was. Everyone who was in distress, they all decided, well, let's let's go be with David. Everyone who's in debt, let's go be with David. Everyone who's enduring suffering too, they all spend time with David. I just think it reflects there's a need for us to draw together. And I think that's what's so useful is that David is not left by himself. His family comes to him. And you have others who had been in similar circumstances. And they're in their distress, and their difficulties. They come in and are relating to David as well. And you can imagine them sitting down with David and going, uh, I'm not going through what you're going through, but I've had some tough times too. And you can just imagine, shoulder on shoulder with each other about their difficulties. All gathered together in this cave. About 400 of them plus the family. That's what the scriptures tell us. And I think the the Scriptures try to make that point, is that we need each other. From the very beginning, God looked at Adam and said, it's not good for him to be alone. He creates Eve. I'm amazed at the wisdom of God that He did not instruct every Christian, I want you to be alone, stay at home, study the Word of God, and that's enough. But instructed Christians in various geographical areas, come together, worship together, pray together, study together. There was a need for that. Think about all these passages that reflect that. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Now we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the weaknesses of those without strength and not to please ourselves. Carry one another's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. There is a call for us to come to each other's aid in times of suffering. A call to say, I'm going to help you out. I see your difficulty. I see your suffering. What can I do to assist? And sometimes the best assistance is just to sit there and be there. The best thing those three friends of Job that they could have done would have been just to sit there. and Because once they opened their mouth, the pain began. If they just would have sat there and listened and helped. And I imagine that's what was going on here with David. Bring the family in and people throughout Israel hearing David's plight all come to him and they sit in the cave too. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. It describes an interconnection that we're supposed to have with each other. A sharing of not only the good times but also the bad times. An ability to rely upon each other in times of distress. And those are the two things that we see David using and I think those two things are described in the New Testament. Is that we first turn to God and trust in God and then we help each other out during our times of suffering. And so I want you to think about as we are following the life of David, the righteous will suffer. Don't be surprised. I would love to be able to offer the... The story that it was all going to be easy. (laughs) I wish. It's all going to be simple. If you'll just follow after God, things will just be so easy. You know, you'll, you'll make every bill payment. You'll have your cake and eat it too. We'll all be wealthy, healthy, and wise. And yet that promise never exists. In fact, we see the righteous do suffer. The righteous suffer because Satan is fighting us. Because darkness does not want to see us. Following after God. We must expect that kind of suffering. We must expect them to heap their abuse upon us. And so do not be surprised. And when those times do happen, turn to God first. Look at those pleads and those prayers that David gives of saying to God, You're my fortress, you're my refuge, I'm trusting in you you will get me through this. I don't know how it's going to work out. I don't know what the end result's going to be. I trust you with my life. And I expect that you will turn things out in such a way that will glorify your name and glorify your purpose. And during those times, let's turn to one another. Let's not ignore each other in times of suffering. And I know I, I, I'm in a peculiar position that I often am, get to be beside you in times of suffering. And I've learned rather quickly, sometimes the best thing to say is nothing at all. Just the look of, I know, it's hard, it's difficult, and there's nothing I can do. And we wish there was something we could do for each other to take care of the pain, to remove the suffering, to end the trial. There's nothing we can do. But you know, I'm always here for you. You're always here for me. And we'll get through this. And one day we will stand before God... And all of our suffering and all of our this, as Paul said, momentary light affliction will seem as nothing when we stand before God and the glory that exists that's waiting for us. If you'll pull your psalm books out, we're going to invite you to turn to Jesus Christ because that is the hope that we have, is that whether good or evil, you are going to experience the valleys of life. Why not have God on your side? Why not have somebody that you can turn to in those times of trial? Somebody that you can rely upon who will never leave you and never forsake you. Joining yourselves to other people who are trying to serve the Lord with all of their heart. Turn away from your sins. Confess that Jesus is the Lord. He is your Savior. And it's time for you to surrender to His will and serve Him with all of your heart. And be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. Have your sins washed away at this very moment so that you can stand clean in the sight of God, knowing that God is with you, that we are with you, and most important, you have eternal life awaiting you. Come to Jesus while we stand in while